So, welcome back to episode six of Make It Stack, the podcast designed to uh, demystify investing for young people. So, today is a very exciting day. It's the first time that we have a guest on the pod. Um, it's actually one of my mates called Mark Ellis. Welcome, welcome to the podcast, Mark. Hey, Will, how are you doing? Could have picked a better guest for your first one, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, let's let us let us not be too self-deprecating straight off the bat. Um, no, it's it's really really good to um, have you on. Um, so, for those of you who don't know, um, I was at I was at Bristol University, and uh, and that's that's where I met Mark, and uh, we both were both keen uh, investors and cyclists. So there's quite quite a lot of common ground there. Um, but yeah, it's it's really good to have you on the podcast today. Um, do you want to just like talk, talk a little bit about your background? So like, obviously I know you work in finance, uh, and you know, you're at university, et cetera, et cetera. Do you want to just like give the audience a bit of a, bit of a breakdown as to what you're about and what, what you're up to at the moment? Yeah, sure. So my background's kind of different, but the same to Will, where we sort of met, uh, probably first year or second year of university when we were cycling, wasn't it? Right. Uh, my background is in mathematics. I was meant to do a master's, but uh, copped out on the uh, fourth year. I didn't fancy it and got a job as a corporate financier at a accountancy practice um, that's based mainly in London, uh, but it's got uh, offices throughout the east of England. And that brings a lot of really interesting things for me. Um, like the roles I role I do is sort of on the opposite side to what Will's looking at. And I'm helping advise smaller, medium-sized businesses to raise equity financing, usually through sort of angel investors, venture capital trusts, private equity funds, um, to ensure that they can grow to the best of their abilities. Um, and just as a wider um, practice as well, sort of working on M and A, um, that kind of stuff, structuring. Uh, it's it's all all about helping businesses as opposed to actively investing i suppose oh great that, that, that sounds really good so um who, so you kind of might have touched upon this before but like so who, who are your sort of main clients that you're sort of working with on like a day-to-day uh basis so as a as a firm we are focuses on small and medium sized businesses so maybe okay. under 50 million turnover uh there's quite a lot of regional clients so we've got offices in cambridge uh, norwich which is actually where i'm living at the minute and okay. uh, bishop stortford and and the city of london as well and there's sort of clusters of clients that um, have the audit done uh, statutory accounts and whatnot but then there's a whole bunch of um high growth businesses mainly from london um sort of your startup scene that i get to deal with on a regular basis and those clients range from all sorts of industries. Uh, we've been looking at things from um, sort of uh, athleisure, um, clothing, that sort of thing, all the way through to chemicals, market, chemical marketplaces. Um, so it's yeah. really, it really is a different business uh, that you're working with all the time. Um, and that, that's really, really fun. Uh, but you've obviously got to learn a lot. Um, about different industries because you need to know more than your client um, which is yeah. it's, it's always good fun uh, staying one step ahead and there's luckily there's quite a few really intelligent people around me so it's provided me with quite a good opportunity to learn a lot and 
actually excel quite a lot for a young person. I do quite a lot of client-facing work, which I think is okay. quite unusual for anyone in a sort of from the accountancy side of things. Um, I think particularly in investment banking, uh, you don't really see face-to-face with a client for a good couple of years. However, I think within maybe our first two months, actually, as um, not leading client meetings, but definitely uh, definitely making valuable contributions, which is it's quite good yeah. to have that trust. Um, but yeah, no, that's really that's that's really interesting that because like like on, on my side in investment consultancy, we're kind of dealing with uh, defined benefit pension funds, and I kind of feel like it's going to be a while before I sit in any of those trusty trusty board meetings. So it sounds it sounds it sounds really good that you're kind of getting exposure like really early on. Yeah, um, I think I think there's a difference there, isn't it? obviously the the stakeholders that we're that i'm interacting with are generally owners of bit smallish businesses um maybe a couple of million turnover or in the case of the startup scene it's yeah sometimes only just post revenue so i think the, the risks around letting a relatively junior member of the team into those meetings are relatively slight in comparison to maybe what you guys are dealing with <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a fair point to be honest. Yeah, but it's it's all it's all a good learning experience. Um, but like, what w- one of the things that I really wanted to like one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on the podcast was to sort of talk potentially about like marrying this kind of this sort of retail investor world, which I'm really interested in because like th- th- all this podcast is all about sort of um, helping you know people like me and you sort of navigate the world of investing, which which can be quite quite a challenge and. Um, and sort of trying to put forward different kind of investment ideas. And I know you mentioned that you did a lot of work with uh, venture capital trusts. Um, like, do you want to just give like a brief sort of overview of, of what a venture capital trust is and why it could be sort of useful for people like people like me and you investing? Yeah, so it's, typ- it's one of those things that's considered an alternative asset class for the retail investor. You can't normally access these unless you've got a lot. I mean, and I mean a lot of money directly. It's usually um, based on a, a, a typical fund structure where you've got LPs putting in cash um, to a general uh, a general partner. Those LPs are usually uh, things like uh, insurance companies, uh, pension funds. And what the uh, general partner does, the GP will then invest that money into a number of um, different businesses under specific mandates and one of those one of those is uh, venture capital so a special kind of that is a venture capital trust which has got some pretty unique um, tax advantages to it for the investor Um, i won't go into the details of those uh, just because i'm not a tax guy (laughs) Um, (laughs) for disclosure uh, for disclosure yeah there's uh, (laughs) a There's a load of clever people that know about tax and it's certainly got less dull um, as, as I've got to learn about it a bit more. Um, but yeah, the, the whole point of these investment schemes and even to some extent um, EIS and SEIS um, investment for angel investors, it's all about um, tax relief on losses and they are right. quite valuable. So although you often do need quite a lot of money to Um, access these directly particularly in the angel investment because you are directly liable for that Um, you can generally as i believe you have done in the past will um, invest in a a fund that um, sort of allocate uh, that you can buy into that either tracks or is investing in uh, private equity 
um, and potentially venture capital mm-hmm. trusts as well. Yeah, great. That's interesting. Like I was, I was doing a bit of sort of research um, in the past couple of days because I knew, I knew you were sort of coming on the podcast, and I heard that um, there's there's something like a thirty percent tax bill you could potentially save if, if if you as a retail investor go go into go into these products and you acquire these shares off the primary market. I'm not sure if that uh, that rings any bells, uh, but that sounds rather positive for for say a wealthy individual that that. Uh, is liable to pay to pay tax. I mean, I guess I guess from like from certainly from my perspective, may, maybe you, um, you know, tax at the moment isn't isn't much of an issue, um, but at, but at some point in the future it is. But the, the thing is, is um, I think the alternative perspective that I've got to you is I look at it from the company's side. If the if schemes like EIS, SEIS, and the VCTs um, didn't exist, then it's going to be really really hard for some promising businesses to actually. Um, acquire any capital and uh, grow in the way that they can uh, and I think it'd be a real shame if those those schemes were to be taken away um, and I think because yeah. we're already to some extent uh, struggling versus say the US in terms of real real in- ingenious uh, startup companies and if we take away that lifeline of funding which is essentially giving uh, investors up to about, I think it's 33, so 30 or 33% um, relief on a, any loss um, from such investments if they go bust. Um, so it'd be, it really would be a travesty for small businesses in the UK. Yeah, that, that's an interesting. And so another kind of uh, question that, that I have and that the, the listeners might have too is like the VCTs, especially acquiring these investments off the primary market, um the sort of returns and historical returns you know generated off like i say five five year holding period they don't seem super transparent in my opinion so would you be able to i mean i'm not asking you to make any forecasts or anything but what what sort of return could uh an investor expect when when they're going into a vct so translating it into an investor's side as in if me or you invest into a fund, yeah. it'd be a bit more difficult. I'm not, not as clued in on that. But generally speaking, we want to say that a, a VCT is probably looking for between three and five times its money back within five to seven years on the investment in a, a particular company. That's um, punchy, that, isn't it? It is punchy, but you've got to take into account that they're spreading their bets. So although they are aiming for that, maybe one in 20 of these companies really blows up and um, you get the gain um, from that company. So the, the diligence around these investments is, is very costly. Um, part of the reason why you probably won't see um, VCT investments with sub two million pounds, uh, just because the due diligence fees around them, is just extortionate in comparison to the actual investment. Um, but yeah, it's um, so so. The fees eat a lot into returns then for 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 investors for going into these products because it sounds like they are quite sophisticated in terms of the resources required to run them. Yeah. So if think about it from this perspective, you're a venture capital trust looking to invest some cash, and to get the best returns, you need to get in at a, at an early stage, not something ridiculous like pre revenue because you'd never get your money back. Um, but you want to be looking at something that's um, post-revenue, maybe pre-profit um, and pre-cash uh, flow positive. And what, what, we, what you're looking for really is a business that's going to grow um, 
the amount of um, investment that you put in uh, by five to sevenfold, uh, or three to five times. But to do that, you've really got to put some thought into what you're actually investing in. You've got to mm. have a look at, do, do their forecast stack up? Have they done appropriate market research? Have they got a, a killer uh, market entry strategy? And are they going to be able to actually gain any traction? And it's really difficult to do that on the cheap. Um, so mm. me or you could look into investing in a public company and we'd have, assuming that they've been trading for quite a while, we could have quite a few years of annual reports, look into numerous earnings calls, that kind of thing. Ours, the, the governance in private companies is it's not that it's rubbish. It's just that a lot of owner managers actually don't really think about this. Uh, they kind of stumble across something and it's like, oh, actually, this is going to grow big. And they don't have the systems in place to um, actually satisfy an investor um, right off the bat. So due diligence is not something... I work on a lot. I have done in the past. I don't particularly enjoy it. It's just not my, my cup of tea. But there's, yeah. there's members of the team that um, I work in that do. And a lot of the trouble is actually generating the information from the off um, and making sure it's reliable and an investor can make an informed decision. And you could easily spend hundreds of thousands on due diligence fees and legal costs on, on a, on a deal, uh, on a venture capital deal. I mean, under two, under two million, it's just not worth it. So seating into the amount of investment. Yeah. Oh, that, that, that's, that sounds, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> I certainly highlighted how little I know about, about this specific asset class. Cause, um, yeah, like I was, I was looking at the, the Harbury's Landsland website and, um, I, I feel like the sort of turbulent market environment we've recently experienced with COVID has potentially impacted the VCT industry quite badly because when I went to the website, there were actually no available VCTs for uh, investors to actually apply for. So I'm not sure if, if that makes any sense from your perspective, but it, it sounds like they can be very sensitive to the economic outlook at any particular moment in time. Does, does that sound uh, sort of feasible? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where if you look at it from a macro perspective, uh, smaller companies are naturally more sensitive to the swings in the economy uh, just because they don't have mm. a huge balance sheet to actually uh, bolster any movements. Um, as soon as, a, um, as, soon as um, demand goes down, uh, driven by a recession or an event-driven um, thing like uh, COVID, then they quickly unwind any working capital if uh, they can't sell stuff. Um, and that causes a real issue just down the line because once they've wound on the working capital and then demand starts to pick up again, they've actually got no headroom to then start growing. Um, so it's kind of like a, they've stayed afloat, but now they're stuck in limbo because they haven't got the cash to actually uh, restart again. Um, but it just go, going back to your point on uh, venture capitals and the, the availability of such investments at the minute, I think mm. um, particularly during the first couple of weeks, I was listening to um, the British Venture Capital Association. They did a webinar just on the general state of things. Uh, it's probably worth a, um, a look into. But uh, they they were really concerned. The uh, the member firms within that uh, within the BVCA were were concerned primarily about their existing portfolio and sort of supporting them and keeping them afloat with investment if needed. 
there was there were a good couple, uh, a good few weeks where not much was happening at all. Um, everyone was sort of bolstering and trying, hoping that the storm wasn't going to be too bad, but not uh, not plowing on as though nothing had happened because that'd be a very very daft thing to do. I think mm. um, it's 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 not that uh, it's it's not business as usual, I suppose now, but there's there's certainly some um, some encouraging sparks um, back back in the space. Yeah. That, that that makes sense to be fair because I guess like looking across the asset class spectrum, not just not just in sort of like VCTs and private equity, but also like going into public markets, like credit space as well. Like we've seen credit spread sort of narrow, and I feel like there are you know inklings of 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 confidence that are being reintroduced into the market, which which sounds sounds really positive. Um, like I guess this might be quite a tough question, but like in terms of retail investors you know trying to develop some sort of asset allocation um with 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 a variety of different assets um you know do you think that vcts you know should have a a position in in that sort of portfolio and um, do you think there should be a a sort of upper bound on like percentage asset allocation on on those particular instruments and do you think that it depends on on the individual would you be able to have a stab at, at that at all for the general investor, I think it's probably wise to leave alone. Um, to, be per- <laughs> to be perfectly honest, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's scary because um, with the companies we work with, often um, the crowd uh, crowd platforms uh, use uh, sometimes a, an alternative um, source of equity funding. It's not usually the primary one, just because um, the the logistics around it all a bit problematic. But whenever we do interact with crowd funding platforms you're sometimes amazed by the questions that you get from investors. It's, they should be vetting these people better. It's, it's a lot of armchair investors who think they can apply what they know or what they think they know about investing in public equities to a private company. And I'm not saying that they're two different animals because at the end of the day, uh, you can look at um, a whole bunch of fundamentals and they're the same whether they're 100 million um, revenue um, profit at whatever or 1 million uh, revenue and those, all of that analysis applies but I don't think the average investor sort of looks into that detail or it's, it's more educated gambling uh, for most people I suppose and yeah. it's one of those things where the risks is so high with um, particularly crowd crowd investing is this whole there's a whole different element to it you've got things like uh, dilution to contend with whether the business is actually going to grow at all or just go bust. Um, yeah, you've got some sort of loss relief in, in the forms of EIS and SEIS, if that is applicable. But I, I don't think um, some of the risks are fully understood. Like yeah. dilution is, is the key one. If, if a company raises a crowd um, investment, they'll go into a nominee structure. They'll probably have between 10 and 20% equity at the most sometimes. But what they don't realize is that that is often the first of one or two institutional rounds from a VCT. And that VCT is probably going to take 25, 30% of the equity that is there. So the crowdfunding platform should get diluted downwards. So yes, they do partake in the growth of the company, but their stake in the company gets uh, diminishingly small. And uh. I don't think don't, people don't really understand that. That's that's actually really interesting that you should sort of bring up that point because I do feel like we're sort of entering an age where 
retail investors have the option to trade all kinds of different sophisticated financial products and they don't necessarily have the the information at their disposal or knowledge to really make informed decisions and you know like, I remember like when I was working at um, HL back in the day like back in like back in the 2017 and uh, it was during that like crypto mania uh, era I'm not sure if you remember that but um Basically, everyone everyone wants to get their hands on uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and and all these different currencies and cryptocurrencies. And like, I remember, um, we only had like one or two um, securities on the platform that gave people exposure to Bitcoin, and um, and it was basically like an ETF that was like denominated in Swedish krona and like there's all kinds of counterparty risk and everything. And uh, just <laughs> people were just like. Ringing up like, oh, like is that Bitcoin? It's like, oh, why is it trading in euros? <laughs> all these like, all these like stupid kind of comments. Uh, like they, they kind of didn't didn't have the full the full picture. So yeah, I guess it's really important for people to to really fully sort of um, you know open the bonnet and try and really get a good understanding and, and and speak to you know more knowledgeable people about the about these products. Yeah, and the difficulty is is unless you are sitting on twenty. 20k to 100k to actually invest directly into the companies you're not going to be generally investing enough through crowd platforms to warrant having that direct access to advisors to ask those challenging questions because if you're just part of a nominee structure then you're just going to be sort of a blanket fed uh, well blanket covered with uh, giraffe responses i suppose it's it's yeah it, you, there's a, a lot less information although it, there are obviously rules and regulations around what you can um, share. Um, mm. it's, it's generally a lot more difficult to make informed decisions on private companies. And I think a lot of investors underestimate the specific risk factors to do with um, early growing companies. Yeah. And like, I mean, it's kind of fair enough if you, if you can't really comment on this, but um, you know, I, was, I was reading uh, about this VCT company called Octopus. I think they have like a Titan VCT. I'm not sure if you heard of Octopus, but they they have they're running a VCT which has something like 800 800 million pounds AUM uh, which sounds like quite a lot and I imagine it's in a fairly there's like a fairly large number of holdings um, do, do you think there's there's still systemic risk going into a very well established VCT company um, with a large amount of underlying assets or, or have I have I um, misunderstood that no not really um, I think the risk is the same regardless of the assets under management. You can, to some extent, diversify your holding. But at the end of the day, you're relying on the, um, the portfolio, the, the investment manager to make really good calls um, and to rely on uh, things like diligence, um, et cetera, et cetera, to choose companies that are winners. Uh, that's why it is generally quite expensive to invest um in these in these assets just because yeah. as i mentioned before there's there's large fees associated with any any investment um from an institution investor and these guys have got to be really really on the ball um, because they've got they've got a, a a responsibility to manage other people's money responsibly um in a, a in a very high risk asset so yeah i i, I don't think um there's there's too much merit in the assets under management it could be could be indicative of uh, confidence of investors uh, of general investors into um, 
such a fund, but uh, yeah. I don't think it's really a benchmark per se. Interesting. Well, that's that's, that's been really useful actually. Uh, that conversation on BCTs. Uh, thanks very much for that. Um, I just thought we'd like maybe like take a step back because I, I appreciate we're sort of going into like the granular detail there. Um, but <laughs> no, it's all good stuff. Um, definitely the most technical podcast we've had thus far. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, obviously when when I when I sort of talk on the podcast and, you know, get different people on, um, I always like to kind of get them to talk about their kind of personal investment journey, if you like. So like I've, I've talked a lot about my journey in terms of opening up my, you know, stocks and shares ices and, and my kind of philosophy and, and the investments I've gone into and, and my experiences. Like, would you be able to give a, a brief kind of whistle-stop tour of, of, of Mark Ellis Investment Co and Co and, uh, you know, uh, talk, 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 talk everyone through that? That'd be really, that'd be really uh, insightful. Yeah, unfortunately, mine's not uh, mine's not terribly exciting. I think uh, it's definitely a, the the history of it's a lot shorter than yours, and the, the instruments are a lot less exotic. But I think it's down to personal circumstance first and foremost. Um, not living in in London is a blessing and a curse. Um, is sort of bit of a bit of a, a rubbish nightlife uh, in uh, in Norwich, but what you. you kind of make up for it you don't really make up for it in um, <laughs> in the in the uh, living costs of the place so realistically uh myself and my girlfriend could um be buying a house within well within the next year or so so that's pretty much a goal for uh, for myself and that really limits what i'm willing to invest in um if i had invested a hell of a lot earlier than i had done originally then I might have seen some gains, but uh, it's been pretty turbulent times of late. It's not really been wanting to risk a, a house deposit um, <laughs> for some market volatility in the short term. So a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the cash that I've got tied up is in short, really short um, bank deposits, stuff like that. It's not really earning much, but given it's only going to be in there for a year or two, it doesn't really bother me too much. But then as you start to max those out, you max out your help to buy ice and all that rubbish, then you're sort of left with, well, what, what can I do with this? And that's when you start looking at, uh, well, for me, I started looking at uh, just index funds, um, various active funds. And it's been helpful in a way to sort of um, get a bit of a kick from the upturn um, post-COVID. Uh, that's certainly been quite good on some respects but it's also bad that i mistimed uh, some investments um, into the into the uk market and they've not recovered and don't look like they're going to recover for a bit yeah i mean that's that's really interesting because like i um i've actually like got got the the marks in front of me now and um like the the, the FTSE 100 it is really floundering compared to the us market because like a large part of um like the S&P, for example, is just like Silicon Valley, like big tech. And that's just gone from strength to strength with with everyone transitioning to working from home. You know, like me, and, well, both of us included, you know, we're, we're kind of working from home a lot of the time and, and you know, using things like Zoom. And and um, and that's, in my opinion, is really turbocharged these kind of like quality, these quality tech stocks. Um, and that is, to some extent, you know, bolstered the S&P returns you know year to date and I, I think I'm, I'm correct in saying that the S&P is broadly flat over the year which is like obscene given how much the world's changed um, but then if you look at the FTSE like it's it's like year to date it's um, let's get up now it's you know it's, it's down 21% year to date 
Yeah, um, it's, 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 it's not recovered at all. So although I did, um, I think I mistimed the bottom of uh, trying to make that investment and sort of got caught halfway down, it's never recovered to that point. So quite significantly mistimed it. But I, I think you raise an interesting point in comparison to the S&P. Um, there's the, certainly the FTSE 100 is uh, made up of some pretty historic institutions. Um, there's, I think, is it uh, oil, oil and gas make up a fairly significant portion, and it's it's a dying industry. Um, yeah. Yes, they are trying to diversify and uh, capture that green um, green energy uh, side of things, but um, it's not really happening quite quickly enough. And it'd be really interesting. This is one of my good friends um, who I used to work with, um, who now works at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability, and it's interesting um, talk to him about where the potential for uh, green energy comes from, because can we realistically see someone like Royal Dutch Shell um, completely pivoting um, away from fossil fuels in within a reasonable time frame? Yeah. It, 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 yeah. it, it begs belief. Um, I, yes. I, I really don't know. It, it, it's, it's difficult to see someone of that size and develop that sort of infrastructure providing um, energy and um, fuel to nations and yep. it's, it's, it's amazing um I, I i don't i don't know where it's going to come from i can't i can't think whether it's going to be a completely new player or whether whether these uh, dinosaurs are able to uh, pivot pivot quite significantly um and i think from the conversations i have with that guy it's covid's actually sped up the process quite a bit i think the banks are yeah. taking a much more serious approach to uh, financing green initiatives and that, that's a positive thing yeah i mean absolutely i mean i i do think that the finance industry as a whole is really starting to to wake up to um yeah predominantly climate risk i mean th it has been proven that there are, there are you know financially material risks posed as a result of climate change so you know there is actually a, a, a you know a reason a quantifiable reason to to transition away from um, non-renewable uh, resource you know uh, companies and yeah and, and transition to, to to greener stuff. I mean it's quite interesting that you should actually talk about raw that shell because I was actually just pulling that chart up just to kind of um, provide a bit more context. But basically at the start of the year it was like just over twenty five pound a share. And it's now at like eleven pounds, so it's been absolutely slaughtered this year, and uh, it's, it's shown no real sign of of uh, of recovery. Um, but I mean, I, I just think COVID. It's just it's just it's a thing that has it's been an exogenous shock that's like exacerbated, um, you know, global mega trends. Like everything's just you know really started to kick off in a big way and we're seeing big shifts in the way people think and the, the, I think the, the, the oil industry had a bit of a double whammy in effect as well what didn't they with the um the goings on price war yes yeah yeah that, that was crazy i mean um i remember like a, a month ago going driving past the petrol station it was below a quid a liter for, for petrol i mean the last time i remember that i was like 10 <laughs> so that's crazy um uh, and yeah, so it's very, very interesting times. Um, but yeah, so just going back to, to your kind of specific kind of situation, I know you said you were you're looking to um, save it to buy a house in, in, in 12 months. I mean, that kind of brings up the whole concept of de-risking. So, so do, do you think, you know, as, as an investor, 
you should have a have like a proper plan to to sort of reduce the volatility of of your assets when you're sort of you know trying to trying to land on this on this runway of buying a house you're trying to steady the shit beforehand it's, yeah so so for me the it's it, the the story is just really boring it's um essentially having a a lower amount invested in uh risky assets so most most of the savings that i have are in cash or in some sort of um, deposit, and that's it's not really the the desire to um, save for a house has not really impacted my investment choices. I think the the, the investments have got a fairly high growth um, in comparison to what one might um, suggest. Um, what 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 are you invested in particular? What are you invested in uh, specifically at the moment? Uh, so quite a bit of it is in emerging markets, specifically Bailey Gifford's China fund. Um, okay. There's a fairly chunky portion in that. Uh, JP Morgan's emerging markets, I can't quite remember the name of it, but um, that's okay. also performing really well. And then there's, I think there's a, it's a legal in yeah, general. Um, ex- International Index Trust. Yes, um, the ex-UK version. Um, I didn't want, right. to, didn't want to shoot myself in the foot twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh for, yeah. That's that, that's that's interesting. Yeah. So quite quite a chunky bit of emerging market exposure, but you've also got you know a, a, quite a large portion of your uh, wealth just in cash in the bank account, just just sort of waiting. Yeah. To so be, so, to so be a lot of, a lot of it's on low in, low interest bank accounts. So it's it that's there's no basically no risk associated with that at all um it just doesn't it's not really doing much and that's fine over a one to two year period if the if our circumstances changed and we we say moved to london or we were moving around the country and we wanted to wait a couple of years to buy somewhere then i probably would shift most of the savings i do have into various not super high volatility high growth uh, funds but probably would focus a bit more on emerging market uh, not not emerging market sorry um develop markets yeah and try and develop a consistent as possible return uh, rather than completely chasing the stars um because there's still there's still that uh midterm goal like i don't think i'm at a point yet where i'm going to be saving for retirement there's a number of big expenses in the way first um that are taking taking up the the cash i've got to spare to put into investments yeah, that's 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 really interesting. I mean, like, I, I guess, like, for, for young people, um, to some extent, it's quite simple getting an investment strategy together because you know you're going to be on the planet a long time, so you may as well just put put risk on. And and, and you know, if you look at these kind of uh, default investment strategies, for example, in like a, a defined contribution pension fund, what you see is like the younger you are, the higher portion you have in equities, and then as you get older, it sort of slowly, slowly goes down. Uh, to sort of sort of de-risk over time, and there's this sort of like dynamic, um, you know, de-risking that that sort of takes place. But I I kind of feel like it's you can you can potentially run into difficulties when you're getting older when when you sort of have liabilities to manage. Like at the moment for me, it's just I have my job, I pay my rent, and that's kind of it. But when when you're starting to think about, for example, buying a house, which I guess is the first first sort of thing you start to encounter, but then. Say if you have like kids and you you know you you've got like higher bills to pay and and um, you know other things like that, 
also approaching retirement as well, where you need to figure out what what risk you'll be able to, to hack when you know when you know you might not be on the planet for much longer. Like who knows? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting considering because my dad's not a hell of a long way from retirement now. Anyway, he's fifty nine, turning sixty in November, so he's not too too far away from that point now, and he's getting to the point of being really anxious about what his pension's doing. Um, and it's difficult sometimes for those that aren't super wealthy or certainly have enough capital to warrant getting an IFA of just trusting um, pension institutions sometimes to do the right thing. Because at the end of the day, uh, my father is going to be one of hundreds of thousands or possibly even millions of people on a specific pension plan it's it's a bit more impersonal than having that uh, IFA help you out. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And I, I, feel, I feel like we're, we're kind of opening up a whole new kind of worms, which is like just 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 uh, the whole defined contribution pension industry. Because you know, like back in the day, you'd work for a firm, you'd have a final salary pension that, say, agreed to pay like a third of your final salary in perpetuity. So, so in that case, what's happening is the you know the company itself. Uh, and the pension fund is there on the hook, so to speak, but but you're okay because you you get paid that 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 benefit every year. But now what's happening is, you know, people like your dad. I mean, not my my doesn't have a pension because he's self-employed. I don't know what he's got going on, but <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, you have all have all these people that that have these uh, pension pots who are looking to retire, and then COVID comes along, and then you know, twenty five percent of the value is wiped off in a matter of weeks. So it, it really, really sort of highlights the importance of individuals really like taking personal responsibility yes definitely definitely and i think the early can start taking charge of that and try and understanding uh, that risk the better you're going to fear like ultimately no one can predict something like covid coming along in another 20 years time decimating uh, invest uh, uh, decimating pensions again no one can no one can suggest that but what you can do is try and limit your risks by altering your portfolio positions to minimize any potential impact yeah exactly yeah that's, that's so that's so true and you've got to you've got to invest you've got to invest in yourself in terms of just investing in 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 your knowledge as as an individual to to, to navigate this complex environment um and i guess yeah i guess that's kind of why I'm, I'm doing this podcast to kind of sort of illuminate those things but um yeah and i yeah, think it's, it's super interesting yeah there's I think for for me, I do generally just enjoy reading about uh, investments, economics and whatnot. And I know not everyone's like that, but I think there's a general satisfaction that you can gain by learning this stuff, doing it properly and starting to see your portfolio grow. If you invest mm. in a really good company or invest in a, in a top fund, um, you are going to benefit from that. And I think it pays a lot of, it, it pays it pays dividends pardon the pun to actually <laughs> actually just take the time to read read up and how to analyze companies and things like that yeah it might not be the most thrilling yeah. read for some people but you are going to learn a lot of stuff if you start getting into company specific details and learning about industries and i think it it, it brings benefits beyond just the uh, the monetary uh, monetary gains available yeah de- definitely i mean i mean i i, I mean from my personal perspective you know building a portfolio from the ground up and seeing it perform well is is such a fulfilling fulfilling experience and um you know like that 
when I again when I worked at HL, you know, there'd be like these like ninety five year old guys calling up asking like what the valuations of all these all these stocks are and what the various strike prices were, and like you know he's he's not doing that because he's scared of what's happening he of, of, in the markets. He's just he just he just loves it investing inside and out. Yeah, um, and, I, and I suppose it's, it's, <laughs> diff, it's different for some people, isn't it? Like some people have put uh, an acker on on uh, on the football, and it's that same sort of thrill. Yeah, um, but I think my my family in particular are actually quite um, averse to investing. They're not not as inclined as I am to sort of read up on this sort of thing. Um, but they're more than happy to put an eightfold acker on on some ridiculously two teams. Like, how does that make sense? <laughs> It's basically, basically chucking 20 quid down the drain each weekend, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> that's so true. And at least with investing, like, you know, well, assuming you're not going to lever your position, you know, your downside is minus 100%, but your upside is like infinite. So like there's kind of this like positively skewed returns distribution. And if you have the discipline to, to not take your, to not crystallize your gains too early, uh, yeah, the, the, the odds are certainly in your favor. So um yeah good mate really good stuff man no problem really really um and like yeah thanks thanks very much for for taking the time to uh to get and make it stack um been a pleasure mate yeah all right mark well uh take care and uh yeah stay tuned for further further episodes guys cheers